Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Jesus, thank you for the day, and thank you that you are wonderful and beautiful and powerful and merciful, God, that you loved us enough to, to send your Son to take a cross that I so rightly deserve. Thank you, Father, for that kind of love, and I pray we would live in that kind of love, God, that we would accept the, the work of the cross and the gift that you've given us, and that we would strive to live our lives out in in that manner. God, that we would love you and love others in the way that you have loved us. Help me to rightly divide your word tonight. I thank you for this time tonight, and we give you glory and honor and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So I mentioned Sunday morning, but I never mentioned Sunday night, which is huge too. We've got Church 860 for the first time, and I, I can't be more excited about this. I finished, kind of finished putting my message together yesterday, and I just we're really praying that God would make a great impact in this community uh, among the young people in this in, in this area. We pray that um, He would uh, put it on people's hearts to come Sunday night, that nothing would distract them from that, and that they would show up. And so, uh, so yeah, that, we're looking forward to that. Uh, thank you for everybody that's put in time, effort, and energy to do all that I could not do by myself. Um, it was so such a blessing to see the volunteer meeting on Sunday and see however many it was, 25, 30 people in that room uh, just ready to serve uh, the community. And, and that's, that's really, really exciting. And so keep praying for that. Um, uh, we, I believe, I, and I've said this to a few people, that, that this is going to be a, a huge moment in our church. I think this is going to a, a make a great impact in our community. And I know that our adversary doesn't want it to happen. And I know that resistance is becoming more and more difficult uh, as we draw closer to it, and we can see that in, in manifesting itself in various ways. So um, I said this to Michelle yesterday, and it's just kind of stuck with me since I said it. You know, the, the bigger the wave, the stronger the undertow is prior to the wave. And, and, and that's the truth. If you stand out in the ocean, if you have a bigger wave coming, it's, as it's coming, it's drawing the water underneath. And, and so the undertow that comes before the wave is stronger than a smaller wave. So is too, if this is a big wave that's going to happen on Sunday, the undertow that's, that's coming that's trying to drag us prior to that wave is, 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 is going to be stronger. And so um, we just need to be on our knees, humble before God, that He would use us in a mighty way, and uh, and protect us from hurt, harm, and danger. So, there. If you are serving in on Sunday, you, I think you should know your report times. But all volunteers will be here by five forty-five. Correct? Five thirty. Add some cushion in there. So, right on. All right. The Book of Ezra. Hopefully, you found it by now. Should have given you enough time. Really, the Book of Ezra, the Book of Nehemiah, and the Book of Esther. They, they close out a, a portion of the Old Testament known as the historical books. As you look at First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and then these books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, that, that, that kind of closes out the historical portion of the, the Old Testament, and then it goes into Job and Psalms, it goes into the, 
the, the poetic books after that. And so uh, these stories are, are some of the history of the nation of Israel. The book of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are different than the other books because this is now, these books are written after the, uh, the, the Babylonian captivity. Um, this is this is the remnant coming back. This is what happens to Israel after they spend their 70 years there in Babylon. As we look at the, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they're going to focus on what's going on in Jerusalem, right? Ezra is, is about rebuilding the temple and, and, and focuses on that. Nehemiah is about rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem and focuses on that. And then the book of Esther, which actually occurs... It's kind of neat. It occurs between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of the book of Ezra. The book of Esther happens. And, and the book of Esther is focused on what's happening with the Jewish people who are still in captivity or who are still in Babylon or in the area. And so that didn't return to the remnant. And so um, we're going to look at all three of these books over the next few months and, and just kind of put it all together. As, you, as we look at the book of Ezra, just trying to give you a little bit of background before we actually study, the book of Ezra is, is, focuses on two main characters. One would be this guy named Zerubbabel, um, and he is the, the governor of the area. He's the governor of the province of Jerusalem. And he, uh, he's the main character for chapters 1 through 6. And then, you know, then the book of Esther happens, and then the, the, the book changes its focus in chapter 7. Chapter 7 through 10 focuses on Ezra, who is the, the spiritual leader of the day, and the one that, that comes back to establish the, the practices of the temple yet again. Just so we're all clear about what's going on in the history, the, just we finished the book of Daniel recently, and I think we have a fairly good picture, but just to make sure we understand, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, went into Israel and defeated it because Israel had refused to follow the command of God. God had commanded that they would give the land rest one, once every seven years. They would take a year off. And for 490 years, Israel didn't do that. And God said, well, I, I wanted my land to have rest, and so we're going to give it the rest that you have accumulated. We're going to let it rest for 70 years. And so God uses Nebuchadnezzar, and he, he, he moves in and, and defeats Jerusalem. He draws captives from Jerusalem. In fact, in the, he, he does that three different times. He goes and fights against uh, Judah to the south in Jerusalem three different times. The first wave is when Daniel went, and that's where we, we started reading the book of the, da- of the book of Daniel. The third time he came, he was tired of dealing with the people that were still there, and so he literally wiped it out. He, he left no stone unturned. He just decimated the entire area. Uh, he moved pretty much everybody out. He, he moved some other people into the area to tend to the land. But he, he, he just said, we're not dealing with this anymore, and he wiped them out entirely. Babylon and the way that they captured people and the way that they took lands, they were known for upending or replacing people in their land. They would, they would take somebody from their homeland, put them in a different location, and then take somebody from that location and put them in your homeland. And that way they could just continue to control the land. You wouldn't, as a rebel, you would tend to fight for your land. But if you weren't in your land, you weren't going to necessarily fight for it. So Babylon looked at it that way. And so 
um, they would move people around, and that's why we see all these people, uh, the, the Israelites or the people from Jerusalem moving to Babylon. Medo-Persia, the, the people that took over after Babylon was defeated, right? We move, remember the image? The head of gold, that was Nebuchadnezzar, that was the, that was the Babylonian Empire. And the second medal was silver, and it was the arms of silver, the arms and chest of silver. That was the Medo-Persians that came in. They defeated the Babylonians. The Medo-Persian Empire was known for putting people back in their place. Very interestingly so. Babylon took people out of their place, but the Medo-Persians wanted to work with people, and their philosophy was, let's, let's work with them in their communities, let's let them have their gods, let's let them have their religion, we'll establish them in their place, and we'll just tax the snot out of them to keep them you know, humble. But they, they, they tried to, by pleasing them, they tried to take care of them, you know, to, to get them that way. And so, so that's about where we are in the history and as we read the book of Ezra, it's a book of, it's a story of restoration. It's, it's God restoring the people to the land. It's, it's God's people coming home. It is a story of restoration. And that's, that's who our God is. He, he's, through the cross, He's restored a relationship with Him. He is the one who restores. So as they went out in three waves, Right, Babylon came in and defeated them three times. As they went out in three waves, they also come back in three waves. We see that a group returns with Zerubbabel, and that's covered in Ezra chapters one through six. A second group returns with Ezra, that's covered in Ezra seven through ten, somewhere between sixty and eighty years later. And then a third group returns with Nehemiah, even decades after that. And so as they went out, so they too come in in three waves. All right, let's look at it. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, and we'll get to what he says here in just a minute. Let's focus now on, on the king of Persia, the Medo-Persians. So the Babylonians are out. Cyrus is now king of Persia. It says in the first year of, the king of, of, of Cyrus, king of Persia. This wasn't the first year that he had reigned as the king of Persia. This was the first year that he had reigned as the king of the world, essentially. It was after the Babylonians had been defeated. He had actually been on the throne for somewhere around 20 years at, by this point. But you'll recall, it says that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Think back to our time in Daniel. And as we get to the last vision in Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12, we see Daniel studying the prophet Jeremiah. He knew that the 70 years was about to be up. And so God had to orchestrate a way that the remnant would be able to go back to Israel. And he does that through Cyrus. Does a person have to be the Lord's in order to be used by God? I mean, do we have to surrender ourselves to Him in order to be used by Him? No. No. Look at Cyrus, right? It says, the first year, uh, the, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. He was stirred by God. 
He's an instrument in, in God's hand. It says that of Nebuchadnezzar as well. Now we know that Nebuchadnezzar, eventually, after he spent some time eating grass, saw that the Lord was God. And it's possible that even in this, that Cyrus had an understanding um, because of uh, the, the prophecy that was made about him uh, as to who the Lord was. But God is sovereign over all, whether we acknowledge that or not. I mean, the word would say that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. There is a day coming when all will come to recognize that God is God. But whether he is your God or not doesn't mean that he can't use you because he's sovereign over all. I mean, he can use a donkey, right? He can use pretty much anything he wants. So so Cyrus is going to make a decree. He's going to make a proclamation that all the kingdom would understand. And this is what he said in verse 2. It says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. That's an interesting statement by a king. A king of the world would say that he recognizes where his authority has come from. It's come from the Lord God of heaven. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Kings don't usually take commands unless it's by the hand of God. And then he asks the question, Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. So the command goes forward, given a specific task to rebuild the house of the Lord. Let's ask a question real quickly here. What is it that makes our God unique? What is it that that makes our God different than all other gods? Uh, Sure, he's sovereign. I mean, there's there's many different ways you can answer that question. He's alive, (laughs) and none of the other ones are. But what about in God's eyes? How does God view himself differently? Or what would God say of himself that would differentiate him and other gods? Say again? There is no God like him, sure. Um, Driving at a specific point, let's take a look. Let's take a look. Tell you what, turn to Isaiah chapter 41. And we're just going to peruse a little bit of the book of Isaiah here for just a minute. And we're going to see what God says about himself that would differentiate him from all other gods. Isaiah chapter 41. And looking at verse 4. He says, Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am He. Okay? Continue to put the picture together. Jump down to verse 21. Isaiah 41, 21. He says, Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what, we, what will happen. Let them show the former things what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us things to come. Um, Verse 23, Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. 
Yes, do good or evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. Flip over to 42, verses 8 and 9. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Flip over to 44, verses 6 and 7. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. One more spot, 46, verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Okay. If you want to, just flip back to 44 for just a second because we're going to look at something in 44 in just a minute. As we put those texts together, the overriding theme or what God would say of Himself that would differentiate Him from all other gods is this, that our God stands outside of time. He is the beginning and the end. We read that many different times. And because He stands outside of time, He is able to tell the end from the beginning. He is able to tell what will come. He is able to, to give us what will come in before it happens. It's called prophecy, and we spent a lot of time studying it in the book of Daniel. And I said several times that when God gives a prophecy, all it is is history in advance. I mean, it's, there, there's no question it's going to happen. Why? Because He's God. He's sovereign over all things. He can use Cyrus. He can use a donkey. He can use you and I. And, and, so, and He knows the beginning from the end. So when He says something is going to happen, take it to the bank. There is no question as to whether or not it will happen. There, there is no, absolutely no doubt that when God says this will happen, that's what it will happen. So that's what differentiates our God from all other gods in, in the eyes of God. He would say, I am able to do this. He asks these false gods, let me see you do that. Let me see you tell the future. Let me see what you, you say that these events are going to happen. What did they say of the psychic hotline when it went out of business? They, they didn't see it coming, right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> So. so then, if that's the case, what does God say before it happens? What does God say of the return of His people to Jerusalem? How, how is that going to go down? Does He speak of it? Does he talk about what happens at the end of 70 years? Well, certainly we've seen that already through the prophet, through the prophet Jeremiah. There, Daniel knew that the time was coming. But also here in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 44, he gets very specific about the way it's going to go down. So in chapter 44, starting with verse 26, and we'll read through 45, 5, 
He tells us, he unfolds it, 200 years before Cyrus is born, 150 years before Cyrus is on the scene, this is what he says. Starting in verse 26 of Isaiah 44. He says, "...who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places." God's saying, I'm going to rebuild this. He says, who says to the deep, be dry and I will dry up your rivers. Look at this. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings to open doors before him or to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut I will go before you and make the crooked places straight I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of the secret places that you may know that I the Lord who call you by your name and the God of Israel for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord. There is no other. There is no God beside me. I will gird you, though you have not known me. <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, that, that's just, that, that's, that's God. 150 years before Cyrus even is rolls on the scene, 200 years before this man is born, God, through his prophet Isaiah, writes very specifically, I'm going to hold the hand of you, Cyrus. He names him. I have called you by name. And he even says, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to subdue kings before you. And the way that he says it is just uncanny. He talks about... Um, in verse 1 of 45, you know, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, which is how Babylon was um, protected. Babylon was protected by a set of double doors so that the gates will not be shut. Um, there was an inner gate that if you could get through those double doors, you couldn't get through that secondary gate unless it were unlocked. Well, the night that Cyrus and his army went in, the, the people of Babylon were partying and the, the soldiers forgot to lock the inner gate. so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. And just the way, if you look at the history of Babylon, the way that that was all laid out, it was, it was perfectly given prophecy, history in advance. Babylon ends up being usurped by the Medo-Persians, as told about in the book of Daniel. Cyrus rolls on the scene. If you'll recall, that's Daniel chapter 5, right? And, and Belshazzar is there having a party with all his, his, his crew. And as they're partying, they're, they did some bad mushrooms or something. And they see you know, a, a hand suddenly appear in the middle of nowhere and does some writing on the wall. And they're, they're like, wow, this is a pretty good trip. 
except it's not mushrooms and it's not a trip, it's the hand of God. And he writes out the words, meanie, meanie, take all you farsen. You, you've been weighed in the balances and you've come up short, essentially. And that, and, and, and that this night, your life will be required of you. It, in that verse 1, it says, you loose the armor of kings. Um, and it talked about in Daniel that um, basically the, the guy's knees knocked together. It was another way of saying that he lost control of his bowels. And so Cyrus shows up on the scene, knocks out Belshazzar, and I would imagine Daniel rose up at that point and says, where you been? I've been expecting you, right? He's like, you know, Cyrus, it's about time you got here. I've been waiting for you to show up so that we can get this ball rolling. And it's, Josephus would say that at, probably about that point when Cyrus rolled in, Daniel shows him the prophecy made in Isaiah chapter 44 of this man Cyrus. Here, let me show you that why we were expecting you. And he shows him the, the chapter 44 of Isaiah and says, look, you were name by name 200 years ago. Isaiah wrote this 200 years ago. And they say that because Cyrus read that, that he understood what he says at the beginning of our book, at the book of Ezra, that he recognizes who gave him his kingdoms. All amazing, just amazing stuff. So verse 4, back in Ezra. We're actually going to get through two chapters tonight. So. <clears throat> it says in verse 4, And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, beside the freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So that's, that's an interesting stipulation that Cyrus would make in his decree. He's not sending everybody back. He's not taking all of the people from Jerusalem and sending them home. He's saying it's whoever wills to go may go. In fact, he says whoever is left in any place, whoever chooses to say, it wasn't commanded that all would go back. It was a choice to be made by the individual. In essence, this is a massive mission trip. That's what they're going, they're going on a mission trip to go back and to rebuild Jerusalem. And as we know, I'm sure you've experienced and figured this out, not everyone is called to foreign missions. But we all should help in the support of the work of the Lord. And that's what Cyrus is saying here. Whoever's left, make sure you help them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock besides the free will offering of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. This trip that they were going to take back, this would not have been an easy thing. It's 900 miles through the desert with no transportation. You didn't hop in the Honda, right? And, and just drive across the desert. 900 miles by foot would not have been easy. They're going to return to a place that is essentially rubble. They're, 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 just, they're going back to a place that needs entirely rebuilt. And the people going back, the majority of them weren't even born in Jerusalem. Seventy years had passed. Most of a generation was gone. The majority of the people that were returning to rebuild Jerusalem were born in captivity. This is a place they've never even seen. So it had to be a calling of the Lord to, to overcome those odds. Well, I wasn't even born there. Why would I want to go? 
Well, we're just going to a, a place of rubble. I've got a pretty good cushy place here in Babylon. Why would I want to go? And, and I've got a good job. I've got a good life. Good things are happening here. And it's a 900-mile journey. It took four to five months just to get there. But i got to go because the Lord's calling me to. And if you've ever had that calling in your life, you know what that's like. It doesn't matter what the obstacles are. It doesn't matter what it looks like. I've been called to go. I'm going. And, the, and so Cyrus, God through Cyrus, wants to make sure that these people are calling or are being called, those that are returning. But I like the co- command to, to those that are staying to make sure that they help. And something... that I don't particularly want to talk about, but I think it's important that we do. Cyrus here differentiates between the offering that was going to help them travel and the offering that was to be given to the Lord in the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. That there, there, there should be a difference between what we have set aside on a regular basis to give to God and then the offerings that we would give besides that. Not instead of that. We've had an issue over the course of Calvary Chapel that whenever we have a men's retreat that is going to cost $40, that if we, if we you know, have 10 guys going, that pay their $40 toward the retreat, our offering is less than $40. Because they take the money that they were to, had set aside to give to God, and they use it for the retreat. And, that, and God makes a differentiation between those two things. He says, have your offering that is set for the Lord. And that doesn't change. And then if you want to give to something else, if you would like to do something else, that is an additional offering. Not instead of, it's along with. And so, yeah, I'm not real comfortable talking about that. But something that we need to learn is that what we set aside for God, that's that's God's and and we give that to the same thing each time. And then if God calls us to support a missionary, that's something different. If God calls us to go on a men's retreat, that's something different. If God calls us to become a missionary, that's something different. Okay? There is a differentiation here in verse 4. The two should be separated. So in verse 5 it says, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirit God had moved, arose to go up and to build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. God used, God called specific people, the heads of the fathers, the houses of Judah and Benjamin, these two tribes to the south, some of the priests and the Levites, but it was specific to those that had been called by God. Their spirits had been moved by God. Sometimes when you've been called to something specific, it's kind of frustrating when you've seen other people not jump on board. It's frustrating when you feel that you've been called and you see others hanging back. Press on. Press on. Sometimes it is that you are called and they're not. And that's okay. 
Verse 6, And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. And that's the role of those that stay behind. As I said, we're not all called to foreign missions. The role of those staying behind were to encourage those that were going, to support them, to help them with precious things beside the offering. Encourage those pressing on. And also, those that are pressing on, those that are returning, those that are going where God has called them, we're not to look down on those who haven't been called. We're not to look down on those who have, have, have opted to stay behind. David's army, when he was um, pursuing the Amalekites, David's mighty men, the 600 men of valor, he, he, as they're chasing the Amalekites across the land, they come to a point where they're ready to cross a river, and they had been chasing and pursuing for so long that some of the men were just absolutely exhausted. And 200 of the 600 people opted to stay on the side of the river. They opted not to continue on. And he, he kept, David kept them with the supplies. This is in um, 1 Samuel chapter 30, if you want to read it. He opted to keep them with the supplies. The other 400, they went through the river, they pursued the Amalekites, they ended up defeating the Amalekites, and they, they took the spoil. They, um, David's wives were returned to him, and they, they're coming back across the river. They meet up with their 200 guys, and all the 400 that went said, sorry guys, you didn't go fight the battle, you don't get any of the spoil. And David said, no, 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 no. That's not the way we roll anymore. That could have been the case beforehand. But we are all part of the same family. We are all part of the same house. And so it doesn't matter if you went and fought the battle or you stayed and watched the luggage. We all share equally. And that's the case in the house of God as well. Whether you're called to become a missionary in Ukraine or you're called to support that missionary in Ukraine, the reward in the kingdom of heaven is exactly the same. It doesn't matter. When we get to heaven, if we've supported a, a Ukrainian missionary and somebody got saved by that missionary, that person that got saved is going to come to you and say, thank you. Thank you for supporting this person that he could come and teach me the gospel. And the reward will be equal. Because that's the way God rolls. So it doesn't matter if you've been called or if you've been commanded to stay. or not to look down on one or the other. All is important in the accordance with God. Verse 7. King Cyrus also... How are we going to get through two chapters, right? Trust me. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put them in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Shezbazar, Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now that name Sheshbazar, most people think that is um, Zerubbabel. Uh, that, that would be just like Daniel had uh, uh, an alternate name. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had an alternate name. They would, most people would say here that, Bel, uh, that Sheshbazar was the same as um, Zerubbabel. And, and so what Cyrus is doing, he's taking out the articles from the house of the Lord, those things that were left, and giving them to, um, to Zerubbabel to take back to uh, as he builds the, the temple. A great and encouraging gift, I'm sure. How, how awesome would that be? Hey, before you go, Cyrus says, he goes and, and grabs all these utensils to return. In verse 9, it says, the number, this is the number of them, 30 gold platters. 1,000 silver platters. I like the King James there. It's chargers. 
30 gold chargers and 1,000 silver chargers. I'm a San Diego Chargers fan, so I like the King James there. <clears throat> 29 knives. What? I mean, I just love the detail here. They knew exactly what was being returned. 29 knives that had, had not been used in 70 years to, to, to give the sacrifice. The, the blood well dried on them. And now they're being returned. 29 knives. 30 gold basins. Not one thing overlooked. 410 silver basins of a similar kind and 1,000 other articles that they don't list, smaller things. It says all the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Sheshbazar took with them the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. So he, this is returning with them. It's probably a fraction of what was taken. It's probably quite a bit less than, than what Nebuchadnezzar had taken that now remains. There's no mention here of some of the larger or more important items like the altar or the lampstands, uh, the, the table of bread and what have you. And so uh, these, are, these are all smaller items. But it's important for us to note the detail. No detail is too small for God. Nothing goes unnoticed by our Lord. It says, now these are the people, verse, chapter 2, now these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity. And, and I know you're looking at like, how are we going to get through 68 verses? We're, we're going to speed read. Now these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, whose return to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. Those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sarariah, Realiah, Mordecai, and others. I read that verse because I wanted you to see the name Nehemiah and see the name Mordecai and understand that's not the Nehemiah of the book of Nehemiah, and that's not the Mordecai of the book of Esther. These are different guys. Evidently, they were popular names that year. So uh, they're different guys. If you were to break it down, it's, it's interesting, and we're going to see, it's, just look at verse 8, the people of Zatu, 945. That's how pretty much the rest of the chapter rolls. It's a, a detailed account of those that returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. And for those who would be reading it as Ezra wrote it, this would have been incredibly beautiful. This was people that people knew. This was, these were families that people had met and had lived with. These were cities that their families had grown up in. And so this would have been incredibly rich to those people. Um, for us, it is a detailed account, which is good, that we should recognize that our God is a God of detail. But we, don't, we won't read them line by line. They are broken into different groups. Verses 3 through 19, it speaks of specific families and those families that had returned. As we said, the people of Zatu, that's a family, 945. Verses 20 to 35 speak of people of particular cities. Um. Verse 28, the men of Bethel and Ai, 223, that place where Abraham roamed for a time. The, uh, verse 34, the people of Jericho, 
the, the entrance into the promised land, 345. Verses 36 to 39 speak of the priests that returned. The verses, uh, verses 40 to 42 speak of the Levites that returned. And sadly, they weren't many. The Levites were the one that were charged with caring for the temple. And there weren't very many of those that returned at all. Am I going too fast? For those of you writing it down. Verses 43 to 54 speak of the Nethanim that returned. Those would be the, um, the helpers of the temple. They were the ones that were enslaved, essentially, to assist with the temple. That's 43 to 54. Verses 55 to 58 speak of Solomon's servants. The, there were descendants of ser- the servants of Solomon. Those, this would be those outside of the people of Israel, those outside of the people of Judah. These were people brought in from other lands that had become Solomon's servants, and now their descendants, some of them are returning. These were, these were um, what's the word I'm looking for? Gentiles. These would have been Gentiles. 55 to 58 Solomon's servants. And then verses 59 to 63. This is kind of interesting, this last group. These are people of an unproven lineage. People of an unproven lineage. These people, you see, the people returning prior to this group of people, they, because of the records that were kept, they would have had land and homes to go to. They would have had, they could have gone back into the land of Judah and the, you know, the, the family of whoever it was could say, this is my property. And they would go back to their home. But these people, these last group, they don't have that ability to prove their lineage and therefore they have no promise of land. And yet they're going anyway. They're so stirred by God that they don't even consider that worth it. I mean, they, they're, they're like, they, they had no guarantee and they still went. That's impressive. It says in verse 62, um, these sought their listings among those who were registered by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. They had no job in particular. They had, in fact, they're, they're going to be shunned from even participating in the holidays and what have you until a priest could consult with the Urim and Thummim. Thummim. In case you hadn't heard that term before, that's, um, that's the way they would try to determine the, the will of the Lord. They had two stones that the priest would keep in, in the ephod. Um, one was, they, they say one was white, one was black. Um, could have been precious stones, could have been what have you. And as they tried to determine, Lord, do you want us to go left or right? We'll make the, the you know, um, Urim left and the Thummim right. And they would reach in, and whatever stone they pulled out, that would be the way God directed their hand. It's kind of like a, a magic eight ball, right? Does she like me? Not a chance. That's what it was every time for me. <laughs> Except it's, it was actually ordained and guided by God's holy hand. The magic eight ball was not. 
Just in case there was any question. (laughs) But they were two stones that determined the will of the Lord. And interesting enough, I, I read one commentator that said they never found those stones. So those that those that returned, he tells the governor, Zerubbabel tells them not to eat of the most holy things till a priest could consult the Urim and Thurman. They never got that opportunity. And yet they returned anyway. So it says in verse 64, the whole assembly together was 42,360 beside their male and female servants of whom there were 7,337 and they had 200 men and women singers because I don't know why they're made separate. Maybe, never mind. I was going to make a joke about singers, but never mind. So anyway, roughly... 50,000 people went back. What do we need to understand about that number? In comparison to the number of people that were in captivity, that number is very, very small. It's estimated there were roughly 2 million Jews in captivity in Babylon at the time of the return. If that were be, would be the case, do the math, 50,000 returning is 2.5%. You'd think a few more people would get excited about going home to serve the Lord. But this is who God stirred. And this is the number that He had chosen. It says in verse 66, their horses were 736, uh, their mules 245, no detail on notice, their camels 435, their donkeys 6,720. What we can note about that is that's not even enough animals to get them home. They, they would have plowed through that many animals just to get them home. Because you, you worked a donkey till he died, and then you left them there, and they would have used up that many just to get the 900 miles home. So God would do a miracle just to get them home to have, and have them still have animals to work. Some of the heads of the Father's houses, uh, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minus of silver, 100 priestly garments. That 61,000 gold drachmas, that's not even one talent of gold. Uh, you compare that to the number of talents that Solomon spent to build the temple. It's just an insane number. So the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. They're going home. This is a ragtag team by, by any stretch of the imagination, but they are returning. This ragtag team is headed home. But that's all God needs. Just a few hearts committed to Him and His mission and He can turn the world upside down. And we see that story over and over and over again in the Scriptures. Just 2.5% of the population returning. But look at the mighty work that would be done. Gideon, you've got too many people in your army. Narrow it down. No, you still have too many people. Narrow it down again. 300? Yeah, that sounds about right. 
Jonathan with his armor bearer. Let's see if the Lord will deliver the Philistines into our hands. And he and his armor bearer go up. David and his mighty men, 600 men, take over all of Jerusalem. How about the Son of God turning over the keys to the church to 12 fishermen and tax collectors and the like? Ragtag team, time and again. But that's all God needs. Just a willing heart. Somebody who's been stirred by the Lord to say, I'll go. I'll, I'll go where you called me to go. I'll be obedient. It doesn't matter uh, if I even have a, a, a hope of a promise of a piece of land there. I'll go. I'll do what you've called me to do. And that's what we believe. And so we press on continuing to press after Him and, and to do all that He has called us to do. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace and Your mercy. Thank You, Lord, for Your love for us. Thank You, Lord, that it's not our strength and it's not our might and it's not our power. Those things end in futility. Thank You, Lord, that it's just a willing heart. And we come before You tonight with willing hearts and ask, what's Your will? What would You have us do, O God? Where would You have us go? How would You have us stand? What would You have us do, Lord? Show us Your steps. Show us Your way, O God. We know that You equip Your saints. We know that You provide all that we need. Father, may we just be sensitive to Your, your promptings. May we follow after Your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.